Hello and welcome to Noise Creators episode 28. If you haven't heard this podcast before, and I think we have some new listeners for this one, my name is Jesse Cannon. I'm a record producer and the author of a book on the music business called Get More Fans, the DIY Guide to the New Music Business. And I host the Noise Creators podcast, and I, along with my friend Johnny Minardi, are the founders of Noise Creators. When we made Noise Creators, we set out to do it because we wanted to help bands make better music. So this podcast, we wanted the bands to get to know producers better by listening to what they have to say and finding a good fit for them. But along the way, one of the things I we realized is that there's a lot of lessons that bands cannot just learn from the producers and getting to know them, but talking and hearing what bands did that made them be so great and the thoughts behind what goes into great bands. So when thinking about how to do that, we decided we wanted to talk to some bands, and one of the first ones that came to mind was Thrice. Uh, it's a band that I think has always just been so inspirational creatively and really just made great music and great decisions, and I'm just totally honored to have this first interview be so awesome because I did it with Riley Breckenridge of Thrice. And I think this podcast has some amazing, amazing knowledge for bands and producers alike on how you get to be as great as them. So check it out and let us know what you think of this. Please share it if you like it and please let us know because we want to do more of these and we'd love to know what you want to hear from bands and... We'd also really appreciate your help sharing it. So I hope you enjoy this as much as I did it. I really enjoyed this podcast and getting to know the details behind some of my favorite records. So this was really awesome. Check it out. Hey, one second before we get started with this interview. Noise Creators is able to do these cool podcasts because we're a service and we're trying to get the word out about our service to people. So if you enjoy this podcast, it's really, really important that you share it to people so more people can get to know what we're doing trying to connect musicians with producers to make better music and make better records for you all to listen to. So please, please, please help us out. If you like this and like what we're doing, share it, tweet it, Facebook it, Instagram it, tumble it, whatever you like to do, do that. As well, we're going to start doing a really cool thing. If there's a great quote from these podcasts that you really enjoy, put it on a graphic, tweet it, Facebook it, take a picture of it, and send it to us at Noise Creators on every single one of the social networks. And what we're going to do is we're going to share the best ones. And if you're one of the best ones, we're going to send you a list of prizes we have. We have a bunch of cool, rare things from bands that aren't as much of a use to us. We have a couple of extras of rare pressings of vinyl, all sorts of cool stuff. You can choose from a list and we'll send that out to you for free if you share a really cool quote that we like and we use. Thanks so much for helping out and please, please, please help us spread the word on our service. Thanks. So this morning you guys put up your new song from uh, your new record, and I have to say it's sounding awesome. Can you tell us a little about what went into the new record? It was a pretty unique writing process this time around. Um, in the past, the four of us were all living in the same city, and you know we'd hole up in our rehearsal space, kind of treat it like a nine-to-five job Monday through Friday, and just jam and jam and jam and jam. And because of geography and scheduling, Tepe lives or 
lived up in Seattle when we were writing this record. We didn't have the opportunity to, to do that around the one-offs that we were doing, like the festival dates last year. Um, we'd have Tepe fly in a little bit early. And as we were rehearsing for those shows, we'd kind of schedule some writing sessions. But most of the writing was done online just through file sharing and building logic files and passing those sessions back and forth. And then we used, a, I think it's like, I guess it's best described as a productivity app. It's a Asana. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. So we use that. Um, we're using it for everything band related basically now, which is nice because you don't have to dig through a ton of emails. And But we would build you know songs as tasks and then just kind of open up dialogue the same way that we would if we were all in the same room, but we do it in kind of a message board format. So it's like, how do you feel about this verse? How do you feel about this chorus? Here's an idea I have. So it was unique in that regard. I tend to prefer the jamming stuff out method of writing, but we just couldn't do that this time around. And you know, things turned out pretty damn good. And uh, I'm happy with, with what we were able to do given our geographical constraints. No, that's really interesting. It seems like a lot of bands are shifting towards that as, you know, the internet unites people from further away. This is like, and technology, it's something that becomes possible. And, uh, you know, I did an interview with this band called Publicist UK on Relapse, and they had never even sat in a room together, even recording their record. And, oh, wow. And they just did it all via communication and demos and you know who's a funny thing and you know they're all veteran guys so they could get away with it and obviously this is not how you would have wanted to do your first record i imagine <laughs> yeah <laughs> so when you say jamming out was it always a thing of somebody would just bring a riff or would somebody have a demo in the past and then you guys would jam the demo or something what what was the normal collaborative process in the past for records we'd set up like dropbox and people would just start dropping song clips in there whether it was like a voice memo of a guitar part or a fully realized logic or garage band demo and we'd share those parts and then when we began the writing process we'd sit down and open up those dropbox files and kind of rate the ideas that we had like mm. i think this will work i think that'll work and then we would focus on those highest rated ideas and then try to combine them to build songs out of them. It's very rare that we ever have somebody come to the table with a, a full song done. There were a couple instances on this record where Dustin had some songs that were pretty close to being finished. That was different. But yeah, it's just a, it's always been a lot of idea sharing, and then it's just mixing and matching and trying to figure out which parts work together. So then we jam on a part going into another part and maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. And then the songs would just kind of develop from there. And then all of the jamming stuff out would be as these songs get built out, you know, verse, chorus, bridge, outro, intro, whatever, just trying to get them to a place where we feel comfortable playing them and that they have good energy when we're in the same room together. And yeah, it's kind of how we did it. Nice. So you guys did this new record with Eric Palmquist. Is that correct? Yes. And so can you tell me about that process? Yeah, it was cool. It's the first time that we've worked with a an actual producer since Visu. Because mm. we did we did the Alchemy Index on our own. Mm -hmm. Tepe did the the engineering and we kind of self-produced that. And then you guys would just have mixers every once in a while on some of them? Yeah, I think um Tepe mixed a lot of that stuff. Yeah, I, I looked through the credits and it said some of David Sh Dave Schiffman was on, maybe um, major, minor, minor, major. Yeah, Schiffman 
was kind of like an engineer slash mixer slash kind of producer. I mean, he was he wasn't giving us a lot of creative input. Mm-hmm. I mean, he'd tell us if he thought something sucked or mm-hmm. if he thought something was cool, but he wasn't involved in in much of the pre production like writing sessions. Yes. Um, so working with Eric this time. Eric was a lot more involved. I think it was easy for him to be involved because of the nature of our writing of this record, because mm-hmm. we were doing it all virtually. We just, you know, looped him in on all the the conversations about parts and songs. So it was cool to have an extra set of ears. It was a good experience. He's a really easy guy to work with. And I, I'm glad that he was easy to work with, because if we would have chosen a producer that beat us up or made the recording environment toxic, I think it would have been pretty disheartening, especially since we'd done things ourselves in the past. We'd just be like, oh man, we should have just done this ourselves. So what was the decision after doing it on your own for so long to go with a producer? Well, I I think one big thing was we don't have the studio that we used to have Mm. anymore. When Tepe moved up to Seattle, he sold the house that we built the studio in. Mm. So that wasn't an option. I guess we could have chosen another studio but Tepe, you know, during the hiatus, he didn't really touch a guitar or think about mixing or engineering or recording at all. So we wanted somebody who could best help us develop our ideas. And I think we needed an editor because we'd kind of been out of the game for as long as we had, you know, five mm-hmm. years, four years. We felt like we needed an extra set of ears. And I mean, we met with Eric once and we we're like, this is going to work, I think. This wow. is going to Definitely going to work. And had there been a lot of other meetings or was he really the main one? Uh, We had talked about other people. There were budget constraints and he, you know, he worked very well uh, within our budget and Mm -hmm. just the vibe was good. He understood, you know, what we had done in the past. It wasn't like we were begging him to make the record. He Mm -hmm. was really excited to do it. Mm -hmm. And that was a good feeling to have, you know, probably could have gone through a ton of producers that were like, oh man, it'd be such a a dream come true to work with like Dave Sardi or something. But what if Dave Sardi hates thrice Mm -hmm. and doesn't want to do it and we have to convince him to do it. So. No, I I think that you're making a great point too, that I don't think a lot of people get when they're choosing a producer is that, you know, you could get this person who's done all these records you love, but if they're not super enthused about your band, that might not be the best time for to work with them. Definitely. Yeah. And so what was the process like? Like how long did it take you guys to do it and all that? We were in the studio for six weeks, mm. I think. Did the got sounds for the first couple of days, did drums in about four days, I think. And then we went basically went song by song and built them out with, you know, guitars, bass, and then you know, keys and all kinds of other stuff. We really we went pretty heavy on the uh, additional instrumentation on this record, which was cool. It was fun to have time to experiment. And Eric was totally open to that, which was awesome. That's a, so, so, that, so that leads me to my next question is, so you guys have had such a interesting fleshing out of your, as you guys moved along, going from just a guitar, bass, drums, vocal type of band, uh, what, what do we expect from this one? If you can give us some hints. It's kind of all over the place. There are some nods to Visu in there for sure. There's stuff that wouldn't feel out of place on some of the Alchemy Index records. There's stuff that wouldn't feel out of place on Beggars or Major Minor. Mm. There's stuff that wouldn't feel out of place on uh, Artists in the Ambulance even. But it's also 
moved forward. There's like I think there's a a maturity in the in the songwriting and the the playing that we might not have had in the past. And then, like I said, having Eric in the mix to say, "Hey, this is not working," or "Hey, this is a great idea. Let's build on this." Like I don't think you need to overthink this. Was great because we we have a tendency to edit ourselves almost to a, a fault. I think we we've beaten the the shit out of some songs to the point where we hate recording them and then they don't end up making it on a record. Hmm. So was that something that was always present in the band or did you guys just, as you became better songwriters, it just became that thing of you were, had so many options of how you could edit and then it kind of started to be a paralysis or was it something that you always had inherent in you guys? I think we always had it. Mm. We don't, we're not the most confident band. <laughs> really? Individually. Yeah. Interesting. Um, we're not the kind of band that like walks off stage after a show and is like, fuck yeah, man, we nailed that. That was so sick. Like, it's usually like, oh man, I screwed up this part or, oh, I forgot the lyrics here or like, oh, I totally botched this fill. Mm-hmm. Whatever. Kind of hypercritical to a fault sometimes because people are like, do you ever get excited about <laughs> something that you do? And it's like, yeah, I'm excited about it, but none of us are braggadocious. Yeah. Well, I, I think that that's one of the, the underestimated parts of being like very good at creativity is that like one of the things that I see over and over again with the best creators I've worked with is like we beat the hell out of ourselves all the time. And that's what gets us better and better and better and keeps us being challenged because we're just like never that stoked on anything because we just hear the flaws. Right. Yeah. I was talking actually with the singer of this side project that I'm doing mm-hmm. uh, called, called Less Art. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> His name's Mike Minnick, and he was in a band called Curl Up and Die, and he was just talking to me about the new record. And I was like, yeah, it's always a, a weird process where I go through phases of like, oh, man, I love this. I'm really, really psyched on this. And then I listen to it another day, and I'm like, oh, man, this is not what I wanted it to be. Or like, oh, this is awful. <laughs> and, it, and it goes back and forth. It goes back and forth in waves. And I, th- I, I was talking to him about it and saying, like, it's because with art or music – Nothing is ever really finished. Mm-hmm. Like you can you can always change stuff. You can always do something different. And it's such a challenge for me and for him personally to just put something to rest and say, you know what, that's good enough. That's as good as, as it's going to get. I don't need to beat this to death. Yeah, it, it is. T- like I, I always say that um, the first month I'm usually happy with it. Then the second month I'm miserable. And if it comes on in a bar or something and I hear mm-hmm. the record, I want to kill myself. And I like look like I'm having a psychotic breakdown as I run to the bathroom till the song ends. And then for the next <laughs> six months to two years, I, ca- I will run from that song. And then like two years later, I'll hear it. I'll be like, this sounds great. I don't hear any flaws. What the hell? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a it's a weird wave of uh what you can do to improve and when uh you're going to hear the flaws and when you uh just accept like that's who I was at that time. Yeah. And I mean the the options are are endless and then you get into like you said option paralysis and like I feel like I'd be a terrible mixer. Mm. It's just like there are so many things that you could do and how do you how do you put it to bed? How do you say that this is good enough? Yeah, so that's why I'm, I'm never going to get into mixing. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so, so I'd love to go through kind of how you guys became you to this day, if we can. When the band formed, was there any idea behind the band that you first formed? Or was it just kind of like, I like these guys, let's jam together? It was, Ed is my brother, and he likes Tepe and Dustin uh, because they had hung out a bunch through like skateboarding and stuff and were into the same kind of music. Early on, it was very much, we like... You know, the Epitaph and Fat Records bands of the mid to late 90s. 
and we love Iron Maiden and we love Metallica hmm. and we love Slayer and we love hardcore. So we're like, let's just write songs that have a little bit of all of that stuff in it. So was calling the first record Identity Crisis a reflection of that that wasn't a common thing to be into at that time? <laughs> yeah, it was a very on the nose. <laughs> we're having an identity crisis. And when we were trying to get signed by labels, we got a lot of responses that were like, you guys need to figure out what the hell you want to do. Mm-hmm. Like, this is all over the place. Like, do you, are you singing? Are you screaming? Do you want to be a metal band? Do you want to be a punk band? Do you want to be a hardcore band? Like, figure that out and send us something. And it's like, oh, no, we're just going to do what we want to do. That's a, interesting because, yeah, I like one of the things um, I'm very much a believer in is like, while you can get feedback from people, you have to just keep doing what makes you happy. And maybe you just get better at that. And that is what it seemed like. The next record, The uh, Illusion of Safety, seemed to be like, that was you guys just getting better at that sound. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, th- I think the scope of bands that we were listening to started to expand a little bit. It was like less West Coast and like global metal and more we started to get into a lot of the East Coast stuff. So East Coast, what would be the examples of that? Cave In, Converge, mm-hmm. I don't know, Engine Down. Mm. A lot of the bands that Brian McTernan had recorded, Hot Water Music. He just started sharing a lot of music with us, and we were like, whoa, this is awesome. So um, you had done the first record locally, and then you went to Brian for uh, The Illusion of Safety. Is that correct? Yeah. Identity Crisis was done with Paul Miner, who was okay, the yeah. bass player in Death by Stereo and still records bands. Um, and then we did Illusion of Safety with McTernan, and that was like a three-week session at his studio in Beltsville. Mm-hmm. Which was just like a house uh, at the time, right? Yeah, he had like a detached garage that he had built a, a studio in and we stayed in like the the basement of his house and just out there for three weeks. And it was a, an incredible experience. It was really tough because we had never had somebody criticize what we had done. You know, mm. Paul Miner was just like, let's throw up some mics and record these songs. It was just like a very well-recorded demo kind mm-hmm. of. But McTernan was like, dude, you can't that you can't play that. It sounds horrible <laughs> <laughs> or like. Why are you singing like that? Or why are your lyrics like this? Or the guitar part sucks. You know, he's very, very open and honest and critical. And I think it was really important for us to hear that at Mm. at that point in time, because we were starting to get some confidence in what we were doing, but we needed somebody to kind of knock us down a peg and think about what we were doing and how we were doing it. And um, he taught us more in those three weeks than I think all the producers combined have taught us. Wow, that's really. I mean, Brian is by far one of the most talented producers I've ever known, and that record, you know, I can remember. Um, I worked for Alan Douches, who mastered it at the time, and yeah. I can remember I ran it off at the end of the night, and you know, I'd have, it was my job to listen to the records as they went down and make sure there's no digital glitches because DAWs were so unstable back then. And uh, I then I think spent the next three months every night when I'd have a break just putting that on headphones because I couldn't take it home, but I could hit it play on it on another computer and be allowed to. Do it at work and just being <laughs> blown away by what you guys have done and you know it's so funny now because like bands really don't think that they can do a monumental record in three weeks was there a lot of preparation that you guys had done to be able to pull off something like that or is it more just brian's pace at the time you know we had been writing doing the kind of like nine to five jam thing or the after work jam thing so that had been uh, going on a long time that you guys kind of had this nine to five regimen or your everyday after work regimen. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I think we recorded some demos for him after he had signed on to to do the record. And they were recorded so, so, so bad. <laughs> like, I can't even remember what we recorded with. It's like some crappy four track or something. But they were all blown out and distorted. And all of Dustin's vocals sounded like he was John Henry from Darkest Hour. <laughs> I think McTurner wanted to work with us because he wanted to work with a, a heavier band that wasn't like a metal band. Mm. And then he got those demos and was like, oh, man, I don't think this is what I want to do. I don't think I, this is not what I signed up for. These are totally this is like brutal metal hardcore stuff. So he freaked out a little bit. Eventually, we talked him off the ledge and he agreed to to do it. But So obviously with that record, that record took off. And for an indie record, that was definitely one of the bigger successes of the time. I imagine you guys got a lot of smoke blown up your ass. What did you guys do to stay so grounded and then just make another great record uh, after that? Was there any like philosophies that you had to take into account when the whole world is telling you you're changing music and you're the next Nirvana? Yeah, it was pretty overwhelming. And it kind of goes back to like what I was saying about us not being super confident mm. as, as people. We didn't really believe any of the the smoke that was getting blown up our asses, you know. So that record started to sell well. Shows started selling out. We were getting on good tours. And then major labels started sniffing around. And that was like a good time in music where there was a lot of money to yes. be thrown around. So it was... We're on tour with Anti-Flag, but we're going out to dinner with this guy from like Atlantic and he's spending a shit ton of money buying us really nice dinners and t telling us how great we are. And we're just like, man, that was so weird. Like, <laughs> I don't didn't believe a word of it. We never really valued any of that smoke blowing. You know, I, I could see other bands maybe being like, yeah, we are awesome. We yeah. are the, one of the best fucking bands on earth. This is killer. <laughs> we're going to take over the world. But that's just not how we operate. So that was it was a really, really crazy period because it happened very we were working our asses off and touring like crazy and driving around in a shitty van and we were exhausted. But there was just so much stuff, so much crazy stuff happening that it was almost too much to process. Or no, I imagine it's very hard to consider that the, the, the scope of what people are telling you you could be and your potential when you're like. I don't know. I was just making a record in three weeks in some guy's garage. It wasn't in uh, like Radiohead in a, the world's best studios working uh, all day. Yeah. And at the end of the day, the most important thing to us was being on tour, putting on good shows and having fun with the, the dudes that we were on tour with. Like we weren't trying to, to push ahead this juggernaut or try to meet with this guy and that guy from this and that label. We just wanted to have fun on tour and it kind of got a little distracting for a while. Like just having to, you know, we were very lucky to um, be in that situation, but I was like, man, can we just like go to dinner with the guys from anti-flag or go to <laughs> dinner with the guys from hot water music? I don't want to go out with so-and-so. That's funny. Yeah. So you guys end up going back to Brian so Michael Barriero, Guns N' Roses, Appetite for Destruction, uh, Mixer, is that correct? Yes. And a whole bunch of other things. And he did, did he do some Metallica too? He did. I think he did End Justice for yes. All or Ride the Lightning maybe. Yes, I think you're correct. So you basically bring him in to do some of the engineering, but stay with McTurnan. What was the ideas behind that? Uh, we really liked working with Brian. Mm -hmm. He taught us a lot. And we knew that we were going to have a bit bigger budget. 
and wanted Brian to be a part of that jump to the to the next level. Because I, I mean, beyond being an amazing producer, Brian's just an amazing person. Mm-hmm. So yeah. we loved having him around. We loved the input that he gave, even though he was hard on us. We felt like we needed that, especially with making you know a major label debut and bringing Michael in. He was familiar with the room at Bearsville that we recorded drums in and. Because we could afford it, we wanted to take some pressure off of Brian and keep Brian more on the the producer side. Mm-hmm. And it ended up being awesome. I mean, some of the stuff that that Barbiero did was incredible. Miking up that that drum room at Bearsville, which is like a high school gymnasium, basically. Yeah. I, I've been up there a couple of times for some records to work on, and it is just it was a ridiculous place. Yeah. You see photos online and then like I remember walking into that room and my jaw just hitting the floor and being like, holy shit, this is incredible. But uh, it was really, really cool experience uh, being up there. It was like in the middle of winter, it was snowing, just a really cool vibe uh, for creating music. But on the other hand, we were given a very small window Mm. in which to write that record. Mm. We were given about three months after we were done touring, which was not enough for us which is, so so that's funny because you know many bands these days with the touring schedules it's like you get those 30 days and those 30 days include your week to decompress from tour when you say that was small how long was it taking you guys to write the previous two records kind of spread out over like a year i guess we weren't weren't writing in like really focused periods of time it was just like let's get together three days a week or something and we'll write a song or two songs. And then we just did that for a year because we weren't really touring full time. Mm-hmm. But this one, it was like we didn't have a lot of ideas in the can or in the, you know, in the song pool. And we had three months to write. And R- Brian was flying out for pre production stuff. And I remember it just being really, really stressful, mm-hmm. really stressful, not only because of the pressure of the major label thing, but just because we weren't ready to make the next record hmm. and we knew we knew it was very important we didn't have the number of parts that we felt like we needed and there were a lot of things that we wanted to do because the the scope of music that we were listening to was expanding like, dramatically it's amazing how much more music you listen to when you're in a van for eight months oh yeah i mean out of the year. <laughs> I, I i think that, that that is there's two things you're like kind of hitting on here is that you know like when people normally refer to like you know the sophomore slump it's like you had your whole life to write your first record it's like well there's also the thing of like i didn't have the pressure of being on tour for fucking ever and then i had that whole year to write. And then there's a very big difference between the first time you're on tour forever. And then also that when you're on tour forever, you're hearing a lot of music. Yeah, totally. So, so what was the scope of what you guys were getting into at the time? Do you remember? It was like cave in Jupiter Radiohead, kid a or some Bjork records. I know Mm. I'm going to leave a ton out, but it was stuff that was like more atmospheric and more ambitious and incorporating like electronics and, Heavy bands that were doing heavy in an interesting way. Mm-hmm. I don't know stuff like Botch too. Yes. Um, Great. And we want we wanted to apply those those influences, but we were we didn't have the time to kind of work how we were going to do that out. So you're looking back on this and you're saying, "Wow, we could have done this better." But so many people look at that record as like a real 
apex of the genre of like this is the genre being done really well. Yeah, it's weird that <laughs> it worked out like that. Yeah. So one of the things though that is noticeable though is like the harmonies definitely got bigger. Was there anything that was attributable to that? Since that's not really Botch or uh, Caven, I guess maybe that's a a nod to Dustin's pop leanings, mm. and then for the other guys maybe. You know, stuff like Bad Religion and like a lot of the the uh, the Fat Wreck bands like did a lot of vocal harmony stuff. Yes, um, which was something that we had on the the previous two records, but yeah, it did seem to just get bigger and better. Which I think that that record yeah. seemed to be a lot of is just you know kind of getting that formula even better better executed. Yeah, and you know having eight weeks mm. to to make a record and doing it with a guy like Michael Barbiero uh, engineering and having that time and the budget to to really make a big rock record you can make a big rock record yeah so were you guys up at bearsville the whole entire time for those eight weeks with barbiero or was it like a little bit of different things no we did uh i think we did two two weeks at bearsville we did drums and maybe a little bit of bass there mm-hmm. and then for the next six weeks we went back to beltsville to brian's studio and did guitars and we did strings and vocals and harmonies and all that kind of stuff. But we definitely had a lot of time. It was obviously the most time we've ever had to, to make a record and the most, the biggest budget we'd ever had. Mm. Um, but we found a way to use most of, most of it. <laughs> you always do. <laughs> yeah. I, I tweeted something about that after we made this record. It's like, no matter how much time mm-hmm. you set aside, you will always be working until like, the very last second that you have. There's a term for it, uh, Parkinson's law. Um, (laughs) It's uh, like it is time will expand to whatever you make it expand to. It's just that that is how it goes. So you guys have even more success with that record, but then the next record you choose to do the, you know, as some people would call it the kid A move of like, you know, I think it's always a hard thing for music fans to understand that, you know, you're kind of at this war as a musician of like, well, we could just do what's been working or we could do where our heart is. Was there any thought behind what went into VSU? Yeah, I, I, I think that was a, I mean, it was a career defining record for us. And I think it was, it was a huge risk to take. And I think if we hadn't taken that risk, we wouldn't be around. I, agree. Uh, I, I think I agree as well. I, yeah. I also think it's that you guys pulled it off well, which I think a lot of bands don't do. Was there any particular thought you guys had about making that jump that you think maybe it may have helped the that record be as still sounding like Thrice while still being very adventurous? The label wanted us to do the, uh, okay, you've got, you're done touring, you got three weeks, let's do exactly what we did for Artist in the Ambulance. Like, <laughs> let's just keep this rolling. God. And we, we were so miserable during the writing process of Artist in the Ambulance just because of time constraints and not getting to incorporate everything we wanted to incorporate. We put our foot down really hard and we're like, we're going to take as much time as we need to write this record and make it be the record that we want want it to be because the scope of bands that we were listening to was expanding further. So we had more more stuff that we wanted to to try out. And then when it came down to choosing a producer, that was another battle with the label where we put our foot down and it was hugely influential on the way that record ended up sounding. So that record's with Dave Schiffman engineering and you guys kind of taking the wheel. Is that correct? It was Dave Schiffman engineering and Steve Osborne. Oh, yeah, that's right. 
Yeah, and then it was mixed by Sean Bevan, who had done mm-hmm. some uh, Nine Inch Nails stuff. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Steve was like, I probably had never, I mean, almost definitely had never heard of us. Could you, uh, could you tell uh, the audience uh, records he's done? He did some U2 stuff. He did some Massive Attack stuff. He did some Katie Tunstall stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I, think, I think Dave Matthews Band was the, uh, the, the other one that was big for him too, right? I, I'm not sure. Yeah, it was a so. lot. It was a lot of like British stuff and kind of I don't know like how you would describe it. I don't know what would you call Massive Attack? Yeah, uh, a trip hop. Down trip hop. Down. Okay, down tempo trip yeah, hop. Yeah. yeah, we wanted to kind of bring our brand of heaviness into the mix with his kind of more electronic or stripped down leanings, um, and it ended up being a really good combination. He was awesome to work with. You know he flew out from the UK to do pre-production with us and then flew out to do the record. And he was just such a nice guy and so forward thinking and having him make suggestions that we would never even think of, whether it was like the way he was using like tape delay or all kinds of weird stuff, like dropping microphones in giant water bottles and using Mm -hmm. that to create a, an affected kick for red sky. And like, Hmm. uh, you know, just, Loop building, using synths and stuff like that was nothing that we had ever really done before. So it expanded, you know, what we felt like we were capable of doing. But, you know, the other option, we came down to two producers that the label was like, okay, you could do it with Steve Osborne, but we think you should do it with Howard Benson. Oh, wow. That would have been a different record. Holy yeah. shit. Yeah. Yeah. So for, it, so for the audience who doesn't know Howard Benson, Howard Benson's kind of famous as the guy you go to to make a factory pop rock record like he assembles it and it's very much like he has a saying like you know like he's kind of that christopher walken uh i put on my pants and i make hits type of guy and he's very not ashamed of it i mean we, we actually uh the podcast episode that came out today mike kennedy from all american rejects kind of talked about this of that you know he's very much just gonna take control of the reins and make you a pop hit Totally. It was a total, total major label chop shop. Yes, yes. And we, we went in for a meeting with him. And it's so, it's so funny to me to think of you guys working with him. <laughs> it's like just, it's comedic, I guess, in hindsight, because of how creative you guys have been. And that's just the total opposite. Yeah, we walked into that meeting and we got like the studio tour and he was talking about, you know, all the massive hits that he'd made and we were just like you could tell in like 30 seconds mm-hmm. like we're like this is not gonna work <laughs> wow. this is definitely not gonna work but it's just like here's where we record the drums and here's where we chop the shit out of them and turn them <laughs> into something that you didn't play and then yeah. like Here, here's oh. my, my two editors who literally after you do a few vocal takes will just make you sing whatever the fuck i decide you did you say <laughs> exactly yeah um and then it was like you know i'm responsible for you know, this number one ballad, rock ballad and blah, blah, blah. He had done like My Chemical Romance mm-hmm. and uh and all kinds of like basically any record that was huge in like in that time period. He was behind in some way, but it was just not a good mix. So we were like, yeah. OK, it's definitely going to be Steve. But that was another decision where it's like if we would have done what the label really wanted us to do we probably wouldn't be around anymore. I, I, I really agree. And I think that that's one of the things is one of the reasons I think people have been really excited that you're back is that you guys continued to invent. And even if somebody would be like, all right, you know, that indie rock song on 
Alchemy Index isn't my favorite, they still respected it. And I think that that's a really important thing that a lot of bands don't make that decision right about. Mm-hmm. Well, we're lucky that we have people that are understanding of like where we're coming from. Yeah, I, you know, I actually, like, I heard a great quote from Skrillex uh, recently, shockingly enough, was uh, he talked about how his fans don't care if he fails at something. And, you know, like, a lot of people really didn't like that debut full-length that he made after the EP. And, like, you know, he was talking about the Justin Bieber thing, how that actually is a success for him. But his fans would rather that he, you know, move his creative boundaries than just be safe and throw out the same shit like so many EDM producers do these days. Yeah, man, that Bieber song is amazing. Yeah, it's, it's very funny because on this po- podcast, everybody's just like, man, that song, it is true. I mean, it is just the production on that Bieber full length as a whole is very, very different and interesting. I, mm-hmm. I, go, I go to it a lot now. Yeah, I, I wanted to hate it, but mm-hmm. I couldn't. My <laughs> wife kept my wife kept playing it, and I was just like, "Oh my god, this is really good." Who is this? Justin Bieber? I'm like, "Oh, well, I guess I could. I guess I still like it." Yeah. I, 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 it's the same thing. Yeah. There, there was some kind of like animated. Um, I think it was New York Times thing. Yes, with I saw Diplo that and Skrillex. Mm-hmm. How they built the that little hook. Mm-hmm. Out of like a chopped up vocal, chopped up and sped up vocal, I was just like, oh my god, I want to get into into that kind of stuff. It's just super cool. Yeah, I mean, you know what those guys do with a, a laptop is is pretty amazing, and you know, also just like the thing that they say in that, it's like you know, they sat across from each other at a living room table crafting that song is just such an amazing thing. Yeah. So uh, I also want to do a correction because I messed up with Steve Osborne. I confused him with another English Steve. Uh, he did not do Dave Matthews Band, but uh, we should give him good credit for uh, New Order as well as Massive Attack, Peter Gabriel, The Doves, and Elbow. Ah, uh, yes. And, Elbow and, and The Doves were two big reasons why we wanted to go with him. I, I think that Dove's Lost Soul record he did, that still to this day stands to me as some of the most creative production I've ever heard. So good. Yeah. So good. I, I, I still go back to that one when I'm like on a record, I have to really get creative with effects and I use that one for inspiration. I must be 13 years later. Wow. So you guys get creatively adventurous. Can you tell us about the process on that record since you got to have your way with it? On Visu? Yes. The creative process there was that that was kind of the the nine to five Monday through Friday kind of writing style. You know, as we were touring in support of artists, one of the big lessons that that Brian McTurnan taught us was never stop writing. Like you have to keep writing. I I I agree with that so much, and so many people can't do it because. And they don't get that. That's where our writer's block comes from. Yeah. So we got like obsessive. So everybody mm. was writing, 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 writing. So we had tons, tons and tons of parts. And it just came, came down to figuring out how we wanted to implement them. Um, I think I got a copy of Reason around uh-huh. that time. Um, so that started to sneak into the the writing and, and made its way onto the record. It really That really expanded the scope of stuff that we could do. Yeah, the programming was very interesting and innovative on that record, even... As somebody who mostly listens to outside the drama genre, like I mostly am, I come from punk and electronic, and I was so impressed with like how you guys still were pushing it, even if you didn't just listen to punk. Ah, oh, thank you. But that also was around the time that we used some of our recording budget to build the studio at Tepe's house, mm-hmm. which became like a rehearsal writing spot and the place that we ended up doing future records. Mm-hmm. Um, which is also something, I mean, I don't know if the, 
that kind of budget exists anymore. But, yeah, um, I, I mean, it, it exists in the sense that you know some bands do get thirty thousand dollars to do it, and thirty thousand dollars is a good budget for tracking, for making a tracking facility for a lot of people. Yeah, if you can do it, I mean, it saved us a ton of money down the road, and it's just I don't know. It become it's nice to have a home where you're not like renting a lockout studio to write and rehearse, and then it saved us money on on recordings in the future. Um, so it was a tremendous investment. Um, I'm sorry that we don't have it anymore, but you know, life pulls people in different directions. So. Yeah, yes. <laughs> but yeah, that was very, very much the workmanlike writing process. Um, Steve flew out, I think, for one pre-production session, and then we would go back and forth on email with some ideas about stuff, and we'd send him demos that we'd tracked in that little studio that we built. Yeah, and then there was a lot of a lot of work in the studio that we did uh, at the barn in, at Bearsville. Mm. A lot of writing there, just turning really rough demo ideas into a little bit more polished songs. So one of the questions I actually forgot to ask before we got to V. So one of the things that you guys kind of became, like I can remember um, I was working with Steve Evitz a lot at the time and we kind of had a thing that we would have to say to bands. It was like you guys and Thursday, like anytime we'd hear a riff that was like the um, it's like the breakdown on one of the first songs on uh, Illusion of Safety, like the finger tapping thing. Like we'd be like, "All right, that's thrice. You have to be you. You have <laughs> to stop this." And it really did become like the bane of our existence that every band was imitating you guys. Was there ever a conscious thing where you guys had to react to that at all? I think Visu was a little bit of a knee jerk reaction to the whole screamo thing that kind mm. of exploded. Um, around Artists in the Ambulance, and then what was the Thursday record that came out? Uh, it was uh, Full Collapse and then uh, War All the Time. Yeah. We didn't want to be pigeonholed into a very specific genre. Mm. And I think that was something that labels and and the media did because they needed kind of needed a talking point or something. Mm. Um, but we didn't... We didn't want to be known as a screamo band. We just wanted to do what we wanted to do. So maybe... The reason Visu seems like such a left turn is because we were trying to make it a left turn because we wanted to get out of that, even though it was, you know, our, the biggest record of our career. Yeah, yeah no, and you know, I think it it really, really did work. So, how does that seg into the uh, into the Alchemy Index that comes next? I think it was, you know, we kind of decided that if we're gonna if we intend to do this for a long time, mm-hmm. we need to make sure that we're happy doing this. We need mm. to make sure that we're making stuff that we want to listen to and stuff that we want to play live. And there shouldn't be shouldn't be any rules in writing hmm. music for us. Like we there there's not we never felt like there was like a thrice sound that we had to adhere to, you know? Gotcha. Um, if we wanted to make something that was crazy and stripped down and acoustic, then we could do that. Or if we wanted to do something that was totally electronic, we could do that. And with Visu, it was, a, you know, a lot of the writing was like, how do we take this thing that feels like electronic and has like roads on it? And how do we fit that in a song that has some super heavy drop tuned botch ripoff? <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. 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 Um, so we're like, for Alchemy Index, we are like, well, what if we just separated those ideas and let those ideas be what they wanted to be. And then Dustin had this crazy idea of doing a concept record and 
steering the the elements, like making air stuff that was a little bit more ambient and light feeling. The fire record was stuff that was super heavy. Water was more electronic um, and fluid, totally on the nose. Um, <laughs> and uh, the other one, Earth, uh, was was totally stripped down and earthy, if you can believe it. <laughs> yes. yes. Um, but yeah, uh, that was uh, that was a an ambitious project that uh, got us dropped from a major label. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. <laughs> so, so, but also, so, you, so this is the first of the self-produced ones, correct? Uh, yeah. So yeah. how did that? How did that go over with the suits? Not well. <laughs> I mean, you can imagine. You can imagine. Like we're like, okay. Uh, they're like, yeah. So uh, Visu is kind of a flop. So what are you guys going to do next? You know, that's make that's something that's like so, Artisan so, Amulet. <laughs> so it was. A, so it was a flop in the sense that it didn't sell what Artisan Amulet sold. Yeah, because it's so funny. Because in any circle I've ever been in, that's not considered a flop. That's considered like the record where you guys took things to the next level. Yeah, it's. The, I mean, because of the circumstances that I I described. It's the record that I am most proud of. Oh, nice. That's good. Because, because I mean, I wouldn't be here talking to you today if we didn't make that record. There's no doubt in my mind we would have flamed out. I think it's an interesting thing, too, is like that's one of the ones on this podcast that producers continually talk about being really influenced by. And I, I think about that, like, whatever's the one with, like, the program drums and the bells of, like, how many times I'd, like, put that on to reference, like, how a program drum could sit with a good gate and everything to, like, reference when I'm doing something. And I think that there's a lot of people who are influencing other people who are still really influenced by that one. That's awesome. Yeah, I, d- I listen to noise creators all the time. Mm. And, uh, yeah, I heard the the Nolly episode and then the episode with, uh, with Drew. Yes. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> nice. That's totally awesome. That's really, really cool. Because I, I love the work of both of those dudes. So That's awesome. Uh, to um, hear that they were influenced by that is amazing. So Beggars was a lot different, though, than from than the Alchemy Index. Was there any reaction? Like, what was the thought from going from such a diverse and so many different sounds to a little bit more focused? I mean, I guess also you do get focused when you're not doing a really big double album or quadruple album, however you want to look at it. Yeah. Oh, man. So, trying to sell that to the, the label was yeah, yeah. the most difficult thing. It's like, so what's the follow-up to Visu going to be? We're like, how about a concept record, <laughs> double double album, based on the elements that sounds like nothing we've ever done, and we're going to take as long as we want to record it, and it ended up taking a long time. What, what, what do you think the team at the label did that? Do you think that was a smashing their house or a, a uh, you know a really deep pill night or something? Oh my god! <laughs> Just like holy fuck, what did I do? Why did I do this? Why did I sign this band? <laughs> and then we delivered it to them, and they were like, "Okay, so what the hell are we supposed to do with this?" <laughs> And then we got in a little argument over a a demo that I think was supposed to be on the Air EP. Mm. And it was like, you have to put this song on the EP or we're not going to put it out. Mm. And we're like, we're not putting this on. It's not going to be a part of the project. Like, well, then we're not going to put it out. We're like, okay, thank you. <laughs> wow. But uh, thankfully, they, they let us leave with that record. So That's pretty great. We took it to Vagrant. But back to Beggars. Beggars was another reaction record. Mm-hmm. Because we had kind of flown off the handle a little bit and gotten super experimental with the the Alchemy Index, we're like, man, writing and recording that record was was weird because we were doing it in parts and it felt like really fractured and there wasn't a lot of jamming. It was a lot of like building stuff out um, in Pro Tools. 
remember how fun it was to have the four of us just in a room jamming and playing like a rock band. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that that was what informed those writing sessions and that recording. It was just like, let's strip it back down to, you know, maybe some keys, but just guitar, bass and drums for this record and just make a make a rock record. And so that's another one all done by by yourselves in that studio. Yeah. Tepe 100 percent. And then so with major minor, though, you return to having uh, Chipman, though, involved. Yes. And so what was the decision behind that? We wanted to get another set of ears, even though Dave's ears were not very, they weren't like a critical set of ears. And we wanted to take some of the pressure off of Tepe as well Mm. and let him focus on being more of a guitar player, multi-instrumentalist than having to set up mics and record and be in the studio forever uh, during recording sessions. So we loved Dave because he worked on Visu. Mm-hmm. And so before that, he was Rick Rubin's engineer a bunch, right? Is that correct? I think he'd been hopping yeah. all over the place. Yeah, like Rick R- Rubin and a little bit of Dave Sardi too, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But um, Dave's, Dave's a super, super awesome guy. Very easy to work with. He understood the history of the band. I think he liked the band. Mm. So it was an it was an easy choice to work with him. We did that one at uh at Red Red Bull Studios. Oh in okay, yeah. Santa Monica. I think Eric Stenman engineered that. And so yeah, us. and so Eric uh also worked at Vagrant, correct? That's so that's what what that hookup was? Yeah, yeah. But yeah, for Major Minor we kinda wanted to build on we had a lot of fun making beggars and writing beggars. So we wanted to just kind of I guess like up the the energy and up the heavy. Mm-hmm. So major minor was just kind of an extension of, of beggars. We got really into using baritone guitars. Oh yeah. Uh, so uh, that's, that's kind of how major minor came up and major minor ca- came at it like a really shitty time mm-hmm. for the band uh, on many levels. You know, we were dealing with uh, the loss of some, some parents and oh, I'm sorry. some terminal illnesses and mm-hmm. uh, our, storage space got broken into and we lost like probably hundreds of thousands of dollars of gear. Oh, and it was just, it was just a really shitty time. Um, so that was a rough record to make. Like, mm. uh, and is that the one that also leaked really far in advance or is that beggars? No beggars, beggars yes. leaked. I, I just, I was digging around online and, uh, saw that beggars leaked three months early. I, I remember writing an article being like, because that was the time when no one would move up a release date when it leaked. And it was just like, you, like this has to change. I remember writing like and using the record as an example. I just couldn't believe that that record seven years ago. I was like, it has to be Major Minor. Yeah. I can't believe I wrote that article seven years ago. This st- still kind of happens so that labels don't adapt to these leaks as well as they should. Yeah. We did end up putting it out a little bit early, but it was just so, so shitty because like, there's so much that goes into thinking about how you want to roll out a record, you know, whether it's like shooting studio videos or like, I don't know, setting up pre-orders and just a lot of thought and effort goes into that. And we had already done all of that. And it's like, okay, well, the record's out there and the record's out there and it's watermarked with somebody saying, you're listening to Eggers by Thrice on Vagrant Records every 20 seconds and it's like we worked our ass off on this record and now people are hearing it for the first time with fucking talk radio going over it or something like yeah and then then even worse in that time is like you know when the under oath record leaked and it's rough mixes and it was just such a shitty time for this to happen to people 
Yeah. I, I think you, you guys really, sadly, in that era where leaks were so prevalent, really got one of the worst brunts of it. That was a bad one. I had kind of forgotten about that. Wow. I'd managed to erase it from memory somehow. <laughs> so, 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 sorry, 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 sorry to do that to you. So, it's okay. So, um, so Major and Minor comes and goes. You, you guys have some bad luck. So what brings about you guys getting back and so many bands get back together, but they're like, I don't know about making new music, though. What makes you decide we should also do new music with this? I think we all really like writing music with each other. And I don't know, I, I never, never stopped writing, mm-hmm. um, even yeah, though you- we were on hiatus. I mean, I, didn't, I wasn't writing as much as I would if we were like a full-time band. Yeah, you had other bands after... As well. Yeah, mm-hmm. I never stopped writing. Dustin was writing music uh, for a solo project, and then for some church stuff that he was doing up in uh, up in Seattle. Ed was working on music of his own and playing with other bands and joining other bands, and then not being in other bands. So, I mean, we we all really just like making music, especially with each other. Um, so. We knew that if and when we did get back together to to play some shows, we were going to make a, a record as well. So it was just it was a, it was a pretty easy decision. I don't think we could have just been like, yeah, we're going to do some festivals and then play a greatest hit set for the rest of our lives. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, a rough ride. <laughs> yeah, especially for a band as creative as you guys. So, what of anything of the last of where you left off of major and minor, did that inform what you guys did for this new record at all? Not really. Mm. I mean, we just kind of, we didn't really talk very much <laughs> during mm. the hiatus. Um, but once we decided that we were going to start playing shows again, it was like, what do you have in the hopper? Like, what mm. do you, what have you written? So it was exciting because I had no idea where anybody was coming from. Like, what's Tepe listening to now? Like, what's Dustin into now? What's Ed listening to? So it, it was the same kind of writing process as, as any record in that everybody was compiling ideas on their own and everybody writes on different instruments. So, you know, somebody might come up with a drum idea for me or I might come up with a guitar part for somebody. So we just had, you know, four years of stockpiled ideas kind of sitting around and made that into a record and then wrote some stuff during the writing process, you know, came up with new stuff, uh, wrote some stuff in the studio. So yeah, just kind of, kind of like that. Nice. So, so my last question that I should have figured out somewhere else is, so you guys are one of the few bands that it's like, it seems like you get a totally different recording, but one of the things I think that's very identifiable is, um, your snare sound. And I always love it. Like, it's like, one of those things like I can remember like years ago, I would test, uh, the drum set when I after I'd get it tuned I'd play the uh bridge from the now I'm not remembering the song the dun 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 bum dun dun on uh, uh, oh, no. yes yeah, so that's it yeah. I'd always play that to test the snare do you fight for a certain snare sound or is that just kind of you or is there like a particular thing you like to hear I like it to have a a, a fair amount of attack but I love uh, a snare that has a good amount of body mm-hmm. I think on like beggars and major minor oh major minor was or alchemy index i was experimenting with some deeper shells like mm. a seven or an eight on artists in the ambulance i don't know what i can't even remember what i used we had mm. a drum tech come in a guy named carl plaster uh-huh yep and he brought so many drums <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so we and that was one of those sessions where it's like oh we got eight weeks like 
we can set up a different kit for like every song if we want to. So we were experimenting with snares a lot and I have no idea which snares uh, I used. I think a lot of the snare sound on that uh, artist in the ambulance though is Andy Wallace doing his thing. Mm-hmm. Yes, it, it's definitely an Andy Wallace sounding record, but there's still like a thing of it. Like I was, I, I did a lot of listening to your catalog and getting to this. I even like went back and forth some other Andy Wallace records. I'm like... You know, there's just still like this a little bit more of the bite and the crack of the drum than other stuff mm-hmm. he does. So I was curious if that was something you fought for. I hit really hard, mm-hmm. which some producers like that and some don't. <laughs> it, it, I, I mean, that's interesting. Some don't. Yeah. No, Brian was like, uh, McTurnan was like, dude, you hit your drums like a total wuss. Like you need to, <laughs> you need to lay into those things, mm-hmm. like beat the crap out of your drums. So because that was the first time I had ever really been criticized with my playing, mm-hmm. you know, I was like, oh my God, I really need to. So that totally changed my playing style and got me into being more of a basher. And then we worked with Steve Osborne and he was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, <laughs> if, if what you're playing is like a 10 on the one to 10 scale, can you dial it back to a four? <laughs> and I was like, oh, uh, I don't even know if I remember. I, I don't even know if I know how to play like that. So that was a cool uh, learning experience. But after working with Steve, I think I settled into like a, a better spot that's like seven or eight on mm. that scale. And uh, it seems to seems to work. And I don't know, just knowing how to hit a snare drum right is, is very important. It, it, it really is true. And I, like, the f- funny thing is I can remember being uh, working at West West Side and I think Brian had come in for the American Nightmare record. And like I it's like. I need to get my drums to sound more like that. That sounds so amazing. What do you, what do you do? What's your board? What's your doing? He's like, get the drummers to hit harder. Just challenge them to hit harder. And mm-hmm. I was like, oh, okay, I could do that. Yeah, that seems easy. <laughs> so I think that, that that is a thing. Yeah. Well, dude, thank you so much for doing this. I think bands are going to really like it. I want to just ask one uh, thing for uh, general band uh, stuff is... Have you ever found out uh, a good way for bands to, cite, to decipher good and bad advice? Because it seems like you guys really took a, an exemplary path uh, through. Wow, this, do you have any advice on that? I think that's one of the hardest things. Yeah, it's a, and and that's why it's a it's a tough tough question to answer. I don't. I, I mean, it depends kind of on what kind of person you are or people you are as a band but like you just know when somebody asks you to do something that's like making it's going to make you feel uncomfortable and you know it in your heart you feel it in your heart you start to get like anxious about it and you know there were situations where it'd be like oh we want you guys to tour with this band or you need to do this or work with this producer or that producer and when it gets suggested, like your initial reaction, this actually makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, your initial reaction is like, eh, I don't think that's a good idea. Mm-hmm. And I think that goes f- for anything. Like, you know, in, in writing music, a, a lot of people are like, first idea, best idea. Like, trust mm-hmm. your trust your instincts and trust your talents. And there's something about those initial ideas that haven't been overworked and beaten to death that is really honest and true and fresh. Mm -hmm. So I think just trusting your gut and trusting that initial reaction to something that somebody asks you to, to do for them. That was the great advice I was looking for. Awesome. (laughs) (laughs) That was really good. If 
you enjoyed this episode, please remember the golden rule of the internet, that if you enjoy something you got for free, please tweet, Facebook share, or tell your friends about it in whatever way you like to do that. Please check out Noise Creator's website and take a look around. We have tons of interviews, discographies, Spotify playlists from all the best producers out there on our service. If you're unsure about who your band should work with, we can help you get the best producer fit for your record. To keep up with us, follow at Noise Creators on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud, Tumblr, or Facebook. This podcast can also be found wherever podcasts are found, including iTunes and Stitcher. I'm your host, Jesse Cannon. I can be found on Twitter at Jesse Cannon or at jessecannon.com. Again, please help spread the word about this podcast and what Noise Creators does so we can keep this going.